0: Chapter 8 of The Worst Journey in the World, Volume 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Green The Worst Journey in the World, Volume 2 by Apsley Cherry Garrard. Chapter 8 Spring, Part 1 Inside was pandemonium. Most men had gone to bed, and I have a blurred memory of men in pyjamas and dressing-gowns, getting hold of me and trying to get the chunks of armour, which were my clothes, to leave my body. Finally they cut them off and threw them into an angular heap at the foot of my bunk. Next morning they were a sodden mass weighing twenty-four pounds. Bread and jam and cocoa, showers of questions. "'You know this is the hardest journey ever made,' from Scott. A broken record of George Roby on the gramophone, which started us laughing until, in our weak state, we found it difficult to stop. I have no doubt that I had not stood the journey as well as Wilson. My jaw had dropped when I came in, so they tell me, then into my warm blanket bag, and I managed to keep awake just long enough to think that paradise must feel something like this. We slept ten thousand years, we wakened to find everybody at breakfast, and passed a wonderful day. Lazying about, half asleep and wholly happy, listening to the news and answering questions. We are looked upon as beings who have come from another world. This afternoon I had a shave after soaking my face in a hot sponge, and then a bath. Lashley had already cut my hair, Bill looks very thin, and we are all very blear-eyed from want of sleep. I have not much appetite, my mouth is very dry and throat sore, with a troublesome hacking cough, which I have had all the journey. My taste is gone. We are getting badly spoiled, but our beds are the height of all our pleasures. But this did not last long. Another happy day doing nothing. After falling asleep two or three times I went to bed, read Kim, and slept. About two hours after each meal we all want another, and after a tremendous supper last night we had another meal before turning in. I have my taste back, but all our fingers are impossible. They might be so many pieces of lead, except for the pins and needles feeling in them, which we have also got in our feet. My toes are very bulbous, and some toenails are coming off. My left heel is one big burst blister. Going straight out of a warm bed into a strong wind outside nearly bowled me over. I felt quite faint, and pulled myself together thinking it was all nerves, but it began to come on again, and I had to make for the hut as quickly as possible. "'Birdie is now full of schemes for doing the trip again next year. "'Bill said it is too great a risk in the darkness, "'and he will not consider it, "'though he thinks that to go in August might be possible. "'And again, a day or two later, "'I came in covered with a red rash, which is rather ticklish. "'My ankles and knees are a bit puffy, "'but my feet are not so painful as Bill's and Birdie's. "'Hands itch a bit. "'We must be very weak and worn out, "'though I think Birdie is the strongest of us. "'He seems to be picking up very quickly.' bill is still very worn and rather haggard the kindness of everybody would spoil an angel i have put these personal experiences down from my diary because they are the only contemporary record i possess scott's own diary at this time contains the statement the crozier party returned last night after enduring for five weeks the hardest conditions on record they looked more weather-worn than any one i have yet seen their faces were scarred and wrinkled their eyes dull their hands are whitened and creased, with a constant exposure to damp and cold, yet the scars of frostbite were very few. Today, after a night's rest, our travellers are very different in appearance and mental capacity. Archie has been lost in the blizzard!' was the news, which we got as soon as we could grasp anything. Since then he has spent a year of war in the North Sea, seen the Dardanelles campaign, and much fighting in France, and has been blown up in a monitor.' I doubt whether he does not reckon that night the worst of the lot. He ought to have been blown into hundreds of little bits, but always like some hardy India-rubber ball he turns up again, a little dented, but with the same tough elasticity which refuses to be hurt. And with the same quiet voice he volunteers for the next, and tells you how splendid everybody was except himself. It was the blizzard of July the fourth, when we were lying in the windless bight on our way to Cape Crozier and we knew it must be blowing all round us. At any rate, it was blowing at Cape Evans, though it eased up in the afternoon, and Atkinson and Taylor went up the ramp to read the thermometers there. They returned without great difficulty, and some discussion seemed to have arisen as to whether it was possible to read the two screens on the sea ice. Atkinson said he would go and read that in North Bay. Gran said he was going to South Bay. They started independently at 5.30 p.m., "'Gran returned an hour and a quarter afterwards. "'He had gone about two hundred yards. "'Atkinson had not gone much farther "'when he decided that he had better give it up, "'so he turned and faced the wind, "'steering by keeping it on his cheek. "'We discovered afterwards that the wind "'does not blow quite in the same direction "'at the end of the cape as it does just where the hut lies. "'Perhaps it was this, perhaps his left leg "'carried him a little farther than his right. "'Perhaps it was that the numbing effect of a blizzard on a man's brain was already having its effect. Certainly Atkinson does not know himself, but instead of striking the cape which ran across his true front, he found himself by an old fish trap which he knew was two hundred yards out on the sea ice. He made a great effort to steady himself and make for the cape, but any one who has stood in a blizzard will understand how difficult that is. The snow was a blanket raging all around him, and it was quite dark. He walked on and found nothing everything else is vague hour after hour he staggered about he got his hand badly frostbitten he found pressure he fell over it he was crawling in it on his hands and knees stumbling tumbling tipping buffeted by the endless lash of the wind sprawling through miles of punishing snow he still seems to have kept his brain working he found an island thought it was inaccessible spent ages in coasting along it lost it found more pressure and crawled along it He found another island, and the same horrible, almost senseless search went on. Under the lee of some rocks he waited for a time. His clothing was thin, though he had his wind-clothes, and a horrible thought if this was to go on, he had his boots on his feet instead of warm finesco. Here also he kicked out a hole in a drift, where he might have more chance if he were forced to lie down, for sleep is the end of men who get lost in blizzards. Though he did not know it, he must now have been out more than four hours. There was little chance for him if the blizzard continued, but hope revived when the moon showed in a partial lull. It is wonderful that he was sufficiently active to grasp the significance of this, and groping back in his brain he found he could remember the bearing of the moon from Cape Evans when he went to bed the night before. The hut must be somewhere over there. This must be inaccessible island. He left the island, and made in that direction, but the blizzard came down again with added force, and the moon was blotted out. He tried to return to the island, and failed. Then he stumbled on another island, perhaps the same one, and waited. Again the lull came, and again he set off, and walked and walked, until he recognized inaccessible island on his left. Clearly he must have been under Great Razorback Island, and this is some four miles from Cape Evans. The moon still showed, and on he walked, and then at last he saw a flame. Atkinson's continued absence was not noticed at the hut until dinner was nearly over at 7.15, that is, until he had been absent about two hours. The wind at Cape Evans had dropped, though it was thick all round and no great anxiety was felt. Some went out and shouted, others went north with a lantern, and day arranged to light a paraffin flare on Windvane Hill. Atkinson never experienced this lull, and having seen the way blizzards will sweep down the strait, though the coastline is comparatively clear and calm, I can understand how he was in the thick of it all the time. I feel convinced that most of these blizzards are local affairs. The party, which had gone north, returned at 9.30 without news, and Scott became seriously alarmed. Between 9.30 and 10, six search parties started out, but time was passing, and Atkinson had been away more than six hours. The light which Atkinson had seen was a flare of tow soaked in petrol lit by Day at Cape Evans. He corrected his course, and before long was under the rock upon which Day could be seen working like some lanky devil in one of Dante's hells. Atkinson shouted again and again, but could not attract his attention, and finally walked almost into the hut before he was found by two men searching the Cape. "'It was all my own damn fault,' he said, but Scott never slanged me at all. I really think we should all have been as merciful, wouldn't you? And that was that, but he had a beastly hand. Theoretically the sun returned to us on August 23rd. Practically there was nothing to be seen except blinding drift, but we saw his upper limb two days later. In Scott's words the daylight came rushing at us. Two spring journeys were contemplated, and with preparations for the Polar journey, and the ordinary routine work of the station, everybody had as much on his hands as he could get through. Lieutenant Evans, Gran and Ford volunteered to go out to Corner Camp, and dig out this depot as well as that of Safety Camp. They started on September 9th and camped on the sea ice beyond Cape Armitage that night, the minimum temperature being minus 45 degrees. They dug out Safety Camp next morning, and marched on towards Corner Camp, The minimum that night was minus 62.3 degrees. The next evening they made their night camp as a blizzard was coming up, the temperature at the same time being minus 34.5 degrees and minimum for the night minus 40 degrees. This is an extremely low temperature for a blizzard. They made a start in a very cold wind the next afternoon, September 12th, and camped at 8.30 p.m. That night was bitterly cold, and they found that the minimum showed minus 73.3 degrees for that night. Evans reports adversely on the use of the eiderdown bag and inner tent, but here none of our winter journey men would agree with him. Most of September 13th was spent in digging out Corner Camp, which they left at 5 p.m., intending to travel back to Hut Point, without stopping except for meals. They marched all through that night, with two halts for meals, and arrived at Hut Point at 3 p.m., on September 14th, having covered a distance of 34.6 statute miles. They reached Cape Evans the following day after an absence of six and a half days. During this journey Ford got his hand badly frostbitten, which necessitated his return in the Terra Nova in March 1912. He owed a good deal to the skilful treatment Atkinson gave it. Wilson was still looking grey and drawn some days, and I was not too fit, but Bowers was indefatigable soon after we got in from cape crozier he heard that scott was going over to the western mountains somehow or other he persuaded scott to take him and they started with seaman evans and simpson on september fifteenth on what scott calls a remarkably pleasant and instructive little spring journey and what bowers called a jolly picnic the picnic started from the hut in a minus forty degree temperature dragging one hundred and eighty pounds per man mainly composed of stores for the geological party of the summer. They penetrated as far north as Dunlop Island, and turned back from there on September 24th, reaching Cape Evans on September twenty-ninth, marching 21 miles, statute, into a blizzard wind, with occasional storms of drift and, and a temperature of minus 16 degrees, and they marched a little too long, for a storm of drift came against them, and they had to camp. It is never very easy pitching a tent on sea ice, because there is not very much snow on the ice. On this occasion it was only after they had detached the inner tent, which was fastened to the bamboos, that they could hold the bamboos, and then it was only inch by inch that they got the outer cover on. At 9 p.m. the drift took off, though the wind was as strong as ever, and they decided to make for Cape Evans. They arrived at one fifteen a.m., after one of the most strenuous days which Scott could remember, and that meant a good deal. Simpson's face was a sight. During his absence Griffith Taylor became meteorologist in chief. He was a greedy scientist, and he also wielded a fluent pen. Consequently his output during the year and a half which he spent with us was large, and ranged from the results of the two excellent scientific journeys which he led in the Western Mountains, to this work during the latter half of September. He was a most valued contributor to the South Polar Times, and his prose and poetry Both had a bite, which was never equalled by any other of our amateur journalists. When his pen was still, his tongue wagged, and the arguments he led were legion. The hut was a merrier place for his presence. When the weather was good, he might be seen striding over the rocks with a complete disregard of the effect on his clothes. He wore through a pair of boots quicker than anybody I have ever known, and his socks had to be mended with string. Ice movement and erosion were also of interest to him and almost every day he spent some time in studying the slopes and huge ice-cliffs of the Barn Glacier, and other points of interest. With equal ferocity he would throw himself into his curtained bunk because he was bored, or emerge from it to take part in some argument which was troubling the table. His diary must have been almost as long as the reports he wrote for Scott of his geological explorations. He was a demon note-taker, and he had a passion for being equipped so that he could cope with any observation which might turn up. Thus old Griff, on a sledge journey, might have notebooks protruding from every pocket, and hung about his person a sundial, a prismatic compass, a sheath-knife, a pair of binoculars, a geological hammer, chronometer, pedometer, camera, aneroid, and other items of surveying gear, as well as his goggles and mitts and in his hand might be an ice-axe which he used as he went along to the possible advancements of science, but the certain disorganisation of his companions. His gaunt, untamed appearance was atoned for by a halo of good fellowship which hovered about his head. I am sure he must have been an untidy person to have in your tent. I feel equally sure that his tent mates would have been sorry to lose him. His gear took up more room than was strictly his share, and his mind also filled up a considerable amount of space. He always bulked large, and when he returned to the Australian Government, which had lent him for the first two sledging seasons, he left a noticeable gap in our company. From the time we returned from Cape Crozier until now, Scott had been full up buck. Our return had taken a weight off his mind. The return of the daylight was stimulating to everybody, and to a man of his impatient and impetuous temperament, the end of the long period of waiting was a relief also everything was going well on september the tenth he writes with a sigh of relief that the detailed plans for the southern journey are finished at last every figure has been checked by bowers who has been an enormous help to me if the motors are successful we shall have no difficulty in getting to the glacier and if they fail we shall still get there with any ordinary degree of good fortune To work three units of four men from that point onwards requires no small provision, but with the proper provision it should take a good deal to stop the attainment of our object. I have tried to take every reasonable possibility of misfortune into consideration, and to so organise the parties as to be prepared to meet them. I fear to be too sanguine, yet taking everything into consideration, I feel that our chances ought to be good. And again he writes, of hopeful signs for the future none are more remarkable than the health and spirit of our people it would be impossible to imagine a more vigorous community and there does not seem to be a single weak spot in the twelve good men and true who are chosen for the southern advance all are now experienced sledge travellers knit together with a bond of friendship that has never been equalled under such circumstances thanks to these people and more especially to bowers and petty officer evans there is not a single detail of our equipment which is not arranged with the utmost care and in accordance with the tests of experience indeed bowers had been of the very greatest use to scott in the working out of these plans not only had he all the details of stores at his fingertips, but he had studied polar clothing and polar food was full of plans and alternative plans and best of all refused to be beaten by any problem which presented itself The actual distribution of weights between dogs, motors, and ponies, and between the different ponies, was largely left in his hands. We had only to lead our ponies out on the day of the start, and we were sure to find our sledges ready, each with the right load and weight. To the leader of an expedition, such a man was worth his weight in gold. But now Scott became worried and unhappy. We were running things on a fine margin of transport, and during the month before we were due to start, Mishap followed Mishap in the most disgusting way. Three men were more or less incapacitated. Ford, with his frozen hand, Glissold, who concussed himself by a fall from a berg, and Debenham, who hurt his knee seriously when playing football. One of the ponies, Jehu, was such a crock that at one time it was decided not to take him out at all. And very bad opinions were also held of Chinamen. Another dog died of a mysterious disease. It is trying, writes Scott, but i am past despondency things must take their course and if this waiting were to continue it looks as though we should become a regular party of crocks then on the top of all this came a bad accident to one of the motor axles on the eve of departure to-night the motors were to be taken on to the floe the drifts made the road very uneven and the first and best motor overrode its chain The chain was replaced, and the machine proceeded, but just short of the flow was thrust into a steep inclination by a ridge, and the chain again overrode the sprockets. This time, by ill fortune, Day slipped at the critical moment, and without intention jammed the throttle full on. The engine brought up, but there was an ominous trickle of oil under the back axle, and investigation showed that the axle casing, aluminium, had split. The casing had been stripped and brought into the hut. We may be able to do something with it, but time presses. It all goes to show that we want more experience and workshops. I am secretly convinced that we shall not get much help from the motors, yet nothing has ever happened to them that was unavoidable. A little more care and foresight would make them splendid allies. The trouble is, if they fail, no one will ever believe this." In the meantime Mears and Dimitri ran out to corner camp from Hut Point twice with the two dog-teams, The first time they journeyed out and back in two days and a night, returning on October 15th, and another very similar run was made before the end of the month. The motor party was to start first, but was delayed until October 24th. They were to wait for us at latitude 80 degrees 30 minutes, man hauling certain loads on if the motors broke down. The two engineers were Day and Lashley, and their two helpers, who steered by pulling on a rope in front, were Lieutenant Evans and Hooper. Scott was immensely eager that these tractors should succeed, even though they may not be of great help to our southern advance. A small measure of success will be enough to show their possibilities, their ability to revolutionize polar transport. End of chapter 8, part 1